0: This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Thing before he cheats. That is Postmodern Jukebox, Scott Bradley's Postmodern Jukebox, with a little bit of help from the band Kitty Hawk, performing Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats. felt that was kind of appropriate because this is the first and only episode where we will see Stannis before he cheats on his wife with Melisandre. Also, you could consider maybe Joffrey killing all of the bastards as cheating, using the Night's Watch to defeat his competition. You might accuse Robb Stark of cheating, using a wolf to intimidate Jaime Lannister. But I digress. Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. I'm Matt. Thanks for joining me. Don't forget that any of the music that you hear on this podcast is listed in the show notes. I would very much appreciate it if you take a look at the artist's who I supply in those show notes, so that uh, they'll know that uh, their music isn't being played for nothing. And uh, I really appreciate the fact that those artists let me use their music. It's Thursday. We're going to be doing the music first, but it is our first time covering Season 2. We'll start with Season 2, Episode 1, The North. Remembers. It was written by the showrunners Benny Elf and Weiss, directed by Alan Taylor. So this is like the third episode in a row that Alan Taylor has directed. That's kind of interesting. So yeah, they like working with Alan Taylor, evidently. At any rate, because we're starting a new season, that means we have a new feedback deadline. And that is July 10th, 2018. Anything season two, or if you missed out on season one stuff and you still want to talk about season one, I'll take that feedback also. You just get it into me by July 10th, 2018, regarding any of these episodes that we're covering here on the audio blog. And it will be included in the next feedback special, which will come out just a couple days after that deadline. How do you submit feedback, you ask? Well, you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog, if you wish. That's M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. Or you can send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. Again, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. And if you say, well, I really want to go back and I want to listen to some older episodes and, and catch up. Well, I'm not sure if the podcast apps are going to have all of the episodes that I've done available to you in the app, but you can always find all back episodes as well as links to podcatcher apps. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second, but you can find all of that stuff at mattsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. And if you could, please, whatever podcast app that you're using in order to listen to this, if it has the ability for you to leave a written review, Please do so. There's chance that sometimes I'll show up in the main Game of Thrones search engine. There's sometimes I won't because it's so new and I don't have enough written reviews. And the only thing that gets me into the just regular Game of Thrones search category is if I get continually get new reviews from week to week, even if I just got one or two new reviews week to week, then that would probably help me stay more noticeable among the other Game of Thrones podcasts out there. And there's 14 billion of them and they're all good. And I'm sure you're listening to many of them. And maybe you don't have time and you think that someone else is going to do it for you. I don't have that many listeners. I need each and every one of you to leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you use, or even if you don't use it, say you're getting this through the RSS feed, but you have an Apple podcast or an iTunes ID, please find the podcast. If you can't find it in the regular Game of Thrones search engine, then use Matt's audio blog. Just type that in and I should pop up that way. Find it, leave me a written review, and then pretty soon, all you'll have to do is search Game of Thrones in the Apple Podcasts or whatever, and I will hopefully be in those ranks. I think that I've been in and out of it uh, since the last time that uh, I was recording ahead, and I'm recording a little bit ahead now uh, before I do the Season 1 feedback podcast, but um, just uh, maybe a week or so ago, I was... Uh, in the listing for just Game of Thrones and now I'm not so the only way that I can stay up there is if each of you uh, leaves me a review and it, it happens in two ways either cumulative If I get over a certain number, then I'll be up there all the time, or if I continually get some from week to week. So don't hesitate and just wait for somebody else to do it this week. You do it this week. Everybody do it this week, and then I won't have to bother you about this stuff anymore because I'm not going to sell you anything else. You know, I I don't monetize this thing at all. I do ask you to click on the artists that I supply, but that's just a courtesy to them uh, for the courtesy that they're doing me. Um, if you don't like that, then let me know. You let, let me know in your written review. Or, again, you can send an email to Matsaudioblog at gmail.com or tweet at mattsgotblog on Twitter. But once again, if you have any feedback, uh, if you want it to be aired out to the rest of our listeners, then get it to me by July 10th, 2018. Man, I've talked enough about all of this stuff. It's time to get into talking about, actually, the music of this episode is what we'll start with, but the episode itself is entitled The North Remembers, written by Benioff and Weiss and directed by Alan Taylor. Let's get to talking about some of the music, and this is going to be a somewhat lengthy segment this time around, so if you're not into the music stuff, you may want to skip ahead quite a bit. Anyway, here comes the music. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. Stannis Baratheon warrior of light. Your sword awaits you. right there for us new people at the time was the first introduction to one of the coolest and in my opinion one of the creepiest themes in the whole of the series and it's not Melisandre's theme even though you hear it associated mostly with her scenes throughout the series it's not Stannis Baratheon's theme because we continue to hear it after he's dead we've also heard this theme associated with Beric Dondarrion scenes We've heard it when the Red Priestess comes to visit Tyrion and Varys and Marine. So what's the common denominator? Well, Ramin actually tells you when he titles the theme in the Season 2 official soundtrack, this theme is the Lord of Light. And this theme is associated with all things relore. And that's who Melisandre worships and, and does some absolutely monstrous things in the name of. Completely unsettling things. And hence, Ramin, just from the very beginning here, when he saw on screen seven gods burning on the beach, you know, here Melisandre is dispensing with all of the gods that he knows that he's already created themes for and such. Now, he's told himself as he's watching this, I'm sure, this is pretty unsettling. We're talking about overthrowing a whole religion here. The Lord of Light needs a completely unsettling theme, and boy, did that turn out to be appropriate with some of the unsettling things that have happened. At least I imagine that's the kind of logistic conversation he had within his own mind. But what we want to find out is, how did he achieve that unsettling feeling that this theme, I think, gives most of us? Well, first of all, he set the theme in a minor key. And if this is your first time Listening to this podcast, when I cover the music, uh, let me tell you what a minor chord is. You just heard it. But minor chords, how they work is they create more tension than, say, a major chord. They sound sad or sometimes scary, as is the case here, as opposed to the major chords, see, which tend to sound happier, right, or more hopeful to our own ears. And so right off the bat, what we musicians call the key or sometimes the key center is minor as opposed to major. The minor, again, making things darker. I've often used the Star Wars explanation. Minor keys are the dark side of the force, fear, aggression, anger, hate, um, and sadness. While as major keys are the light side of the force, truth, justice, hope, and You don't really need to know the terms of major or minor. But just remember that if an instrumental song makes you sad or uneasy, then you'll know that it's likely to be in a minor key. Or if it makes you feel lighthearted or to have hope, then it's most likely to be in a major key. And of course, always note, that is in all of life, there are always outliers or exceptions. But just thinking in the terms that I gave you, here i think you will find in music very very often most often so the minor key is one aspect more specifically there's a specific minor scale that is used to compose this theme and that has differences in some other minor scales but you don't need to know any of that all you need to know is that the minor key helps to make it uncomfortable but i will tell you that what always makes me the most uncomfortable when i hear this theme which notes go up or which notes go down, and what notes are chosen of the melody in this theme. Like, let me play the melody for you in the two parts that it really has. The first part is this. So at the very beginning of this melody, the minor is implicated when the first two notes of the melody are played. And you have that half-step, Dissonance, which you don't need to know. Just know that the first two notes already establish that you're in a minor key. But then you have this third note, which is swooping way low before the last note comes back to the home key. So those kinds of big jumps between notes, they actually create drama in our subconscious minds. The bigger the jump, the more drama there is, usually. And in this case, because the large drop follows the first two notes being very close together, what we call an interval, that's the distance between two notes, that creates a a large amount of drama because we've been set up to believe that, you know, if the first two notes are fairly close together, maybe the third one will be, and then all of a sudden, whoa, this note's way down there. That leaves you unsettling. You might want to think of it like this, actually. If you've ever flown in an airplane, commercial or private, you'll be going along fairly smooth, maybe a little bumpy here or there, bumpy here or there. And then all of a sudden, it seems like the whole plane drops. It's like all of a sudden you're in a runaway elevator. And it only lasts for maybe half a second, right? And then usually the pilot is good enough to stabilize it and, and everything goes back to being normal. But it's that sudden dropping feeling that gives you a little bit of terror, Right? And this happens to us musically in our subconscious mind as well. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be going down. The same thing can happen going up. But the interesting thing, and I don't know if it's just because of our own psychology and we associate up with greater feelings of happiness and down with being low. I mean, our whole language is built like that. You know, I feel down. That doesn't mean that I feel happy, right? So maybe it's just our own construction of our own language, but there seems to be a similarity all across the board with all human beings all throughout the earth that going down and big jumps down seems much more unsettling. We're going up and even big jumps up while unsettling a little bit tend to not be quite as scary. At any rate, my point is, is that this big, all of a sudden, out of nowhere drop to this lower note creates extra tension. And that tells us as an audience that trusting the Lord of Light is going to be difficult because it's going to throw you curves all the time. But of course, that is only the first phrase, the first little motif that is part of the whole theme. There's a variation to this one that happens right after that. And it is actually just as equally disturbing, but for a slightly different reason. Let me play that. Now here, the melody drops again, but we've already had that first low, low drop. It was already experienced. So this time around, he has to surprise us in a slightly different way, and he comes up with this other note to play. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you're being prepared for the drama because of the very first low one. Like think like when you ride a roller coaster and you go down that first hill or even when you ride a whole roller coaster for the first time. The second time you go on that roller coaster, you're a little bit more prepared than you were the first time you rode the roller coaster. The first time around, you were very uneasy because it was hard to tell how you were going to experience the very next thing. Now, the second time, You kind of know how to experience the next thing, or or you can at least expect it to be coming. Even if it still makes you feel a little sick, you're still a little more prepared if you're writing it the second time. If, you know, that nephew or niece or your son or your daughter or, or your boyfriend or girlfriend are making you write it the second time, even though you hated it the first time, at least now you're a little more prepared, right? So that's something that our mind does with melody as well the repetition of the first two notes, make us expect that low drop to the third note. So that's when creating a great drama with notes and trying to keep tension up in a melody becomes hard for a composer. So what does Jawadi do in this instance? He changes the lowest note to something that you probably didn't expect. He dropped it to what we call a flat sixth. Again, you don't really need to know the terminology. The only thing that you really need to know is that this particular note in the key that it's in feels like it needs to go somewhere. It either needs to instantly resolve down or it needs to resolve somewhere else. That is opposed to the first time around where we got used to that very low drop. And actually that note could have resolved somewhere else like it did Or it actually could have stayed because it's a much more stable note. Think of this second note as less stable than the first one. And this time around, something has to happen. The distance of the drop is also kind of weird. Again, this is what we call an interval. It's the distance between two notes. The distance of the drop is weird. It's an interval of what we musicians like to call a tritone. Again, Don't need to know the term. It's just that most melodies typically do not have that interval within. Even though it is in part of the scale, you can only find it between two notes in the scale. And again, that's not really all that important. What it does tell you, though, is that it is something that is very rare and therefore unexpected. So this time, instead of going through the roller coaster and just getting the big drop again, this time as the roller coaster drops, not quite as far, but all of a sudden it jerks to the right. And so you're surprised yet again. And again, this is Ramin kind of going for that punching bag, weird, what we call interval to throw a curve in what your mind is expecting. But of course, we rarely hear just one or the other part of the melody. Usually we actually hear both parts right in succession of each other. And when you combine them, it really gives us that subliminal feeling of uneasiness because it's a struggle to follow the notes or where they might go. Just like it's a struggle to really buy into the Lord of Light, especially at this point in the series. And it's full of just twists and turns. This whole journey with the Lord of Light is full of twists and turns. And so Ramin Javadi has crafted a melody that equally goes through these twists and turns because the night is dark and full of terrors. And that struggled and uneasy journey is what this theme is actually taking on. So here's both parts together. Everything comes back to the home key with these two. The journey to get to the home key is jagged. But at least you get to the home key. You get to a final note that feels like home. Like Lassie. Lassie, come home. Lassie's home. When you get done with those. But there is even a third phrase that is only occasionally used. It doesn't get played as often as the other two uh, because uh, it creates, to me, the most tension. But the reason that it does create that tension is because it doesn't return to the home note. Lassie doesn't come home. That home note that I'm talking about is what we musicians sometimes call the root, meaning it is the, it's the foundation of the very key that we're in. It's the thing that feels most at home. But this time around, the melody actually hangs on what we call the dominant. And again, this is terms that you don't really need to know. But what I mean is that while for the first two phrases, when they return home, just like Lassie does, just like this, or this, third and more rare phrase it dips way down and of course you now typically expect that but the way it throws you a different kind of curve is by not going home at all instead it never really resolves to the root it never comes home like the others did so be honest with yourself in any other aspect of your life if you have a fight with someone and they walk away and you never spoke again, that would make you feel uneasy, right? That, that that feels unresolved. Or if there's a crossword puzzle that you just can't seem to finish, doesn't that drive you crazy? That's unresolved. And it's the same case with music. Your brain, because it heard the other phrases go home, again, Lastly, went home, with the first two phrases, this one now when you hear it, you desperately want it to go home too. You want to hear this somewhere. That's what we call a five-to-one resolution. And again, I'm throwing a bunch of terms at you. You don't need to know them. But I want you to concentrate on more on how all of this makes you feel. Doesn't it feel better now that you've heard that, one, that first note? Go back to that second note? The note that you know feels like Lassie has come home? This is the way that music works. By simply staying on that first note, you never get there. It's like that first note is the unfinished crossword puzzle. It's that friend who told you off and then walked away with no explanation, and you're never going to get one. It drives you crazy. The 5 to 1 resolution that I just played for you on the piano, for whatever reason, And I think it was just way back in the Greek days when they figured out how notes work together on the psyche. But for whatever reason, that resolution is the most satisfying resolution in Western music. We have to eliminate the, the talk about Eastern music because there's many different degrees of resolution in Eastern music. But in Western music, what I've just played for you last is the most satisfying resolution in all of music. Most of the time, you don't even recognize it because it's just so satisfying. But when you don't get it, it's like being addicted to a drug and you can't find a score. I'm not kidding. It's like somebody give me that smack of the dominant to root resolution. Somebody, I need it. I need it. You know, it's 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 really that bad. Even though you don't really process it in that way, something in your mind goes, wait, whoa, whoa we got to finish that somehow. You, I got to get my fix. I got to get back to the one chord. I got to get back to the resolution. So there's all the different ways that Ramin creates a whole bunch of tension. But there's other ways that Ramin tells the story here as well. There's more here to talk about and much more. And now that we've established the workings of of how to make something stick in your mind as creepy or unsettling or unresolved, I want to turn now to how Ramin himself specifically in this opening scene used what we call timbre. Or another way of putting it, the instruments or sounds that are used to play the music that we heard right here in this opening presentation of this theme. He uses timbre to help tell the story. First of all, in, in the scene, you're going to hear a bevy of all different kinds of sounds. They're either playing the melody or they're providing a supplemental harmony uh, in support of that melody. And there's, there's just a wide variety, anything from synthesizers to maybe a distant trumpet kind of sound to strings. I mean, there's a lot in there. But if you've been with me the whole time and you listen to the very first podcast that I put out on this feed... And if you haven't, go back to mattsaudioblog.com, that's M-A-T-T-S, audioblog.com, to find it. The very first episode that I put out, uh, in my introductory episode, I analyzed the music of the main theme, but I also explored the instruments that played that music, the sounds. And I made the distinction that sometimes the vocal element Seems more from Essos because that seems to happen when we're on the map and we hear more, we see more of Essos. Um, this is the second part of the main theme melody. Whereas, mostly in the main part of the map on the Westeros side, where we're seeing King's Landing and Winterfell and all of that, the melody is being played by a cello, by the strings. So, therefore, the strings typically represent more of Westeros. Whereas the vocals and and maybe this horn sound that we hear here, they represent more of an Essos kind of sound. Now, of course, as I've mentioned before, there are always exceptions and delineations. But for the most part, this is a pretty observable rule. When things are involving characters from Westeros, we typically hear more stringy kind of stuff. But in The introduction of this concept like the lord of the light the origins of the lord of the light actually comes from essos so we have this synthy thing to kind of represent the magic we have a little bit of voice harmony in there every once in a while to represent essos and we have these horns which sound distant like they're from a far away place essos is over on the other side of the narrow sea proximity dynamics timbre all of these things help tell the story and remember this Lord of light religion seems to be mainly from Essos. It was brought to Westeros, we know from Thoros of mirror. It probably wasn't brought for the first time, but within our own history of the show, we know Thoros of mirror in a couple of seasons tells everybody that he was sent to basically try and convert Robert Baratheon to the Lord of light. And he failed and he drank, you know, and he ended up with Beric Dondarrion, um, he had, he had a mission of wine instead. He's very much Essos. Melisandre is very much Essos. And also remember how common or how much more common the Lord of Light being preached is in Essos. Think to Tyrion and Varys seeing that priestess in Volantis before Tyrion got kidnapped by Jorah. Think of Tyrion and Varys talking to the red priestess in Marine. <laughs> the religion of R'hllor is a very soc kind of thing if that's even a word soc I don't know I just made it into a word so it's significant it's very significant that in this particular scene we hear the theme played first in the ways that we associate with essos but then we hear it played with the strings that's telling us that this religion of the lord of light it's now taking a firm foothold on Westeros itself. It's gaining steam in Westeros, or at very least in Dragonstone. So just with instrumentation, Jawadi is telling you that, while ooh, this is kind of a new thing, it's already got some buyers, this is real. And it's very interesting that he tells this part of story because he's telling it with characters who, if you're watching the series for the first time, you don't know. You don't know who these people are. I mean, you saw on the map that Dragonstone was coming up. You have to assume what this is. Uh, They've got a maester, seems like, a maester who ends up dead, but they've got a maester, so that seems very Westerosi. But the thing that subliminally tells you where you are, it's the strings. And the fact that this whole scene happens where gods are being burned, the, the gods of the seven, who we also associate with Westeros, we're seeing a religion Undermine one that we already know, the religion that is Catlin's, the one that she made the wreath of the seven gods to save Bran, or so she thought. All of these things are happening, and it, that's unsettling in itself, is it not? The fact that this new religion is so quickly gaining followers who say, for the night is dark and full of terrors. I mean, that phrase by itself is disturbing. And so its it's amazing how Just these little things that Ramin does with this melody helps accentuate everything that you're supposed to feel about these scenes. Multiple facets of music coming together to tell a story. Shape. Timbre. Harmony. It's one of the best examples of how music can affect us. And there's so much more. He continues to develop this theme as the season goes on, And as all of the seasons go on, to where by the time we get to season six, we've got so many additions. It's so complex, just like our own takes on what the Lord of Light is really about. But that's for another day. I'll leave you, actually, with one of those more complex versions. One of the more full versions, actually. um, That is at the end of season six, episode one, The Red Woman the actually the in credits because to me it's one of the best versions of this theme uh, one that while at the same time is still unsettling it's also one that just musically just makes me fist pump because i appreciate everything that ramin has done to develop it to that point so we'll be talking about the story of this particular episode season two episode one the north remembers next So, season two, episode one, The North Remembers, written by the showrunners Benioff and Weiss and directed by Alan Taylor. These guys are on a roll together. Uh, Third episode in a row that this tandem has worked together. On the surface of this episode, really, I don't think there's much to talk about on an an emotional level like there is on some other episodes. Uh, At least not for me. You get a chuckle here and there, you know, especially with Tyrion and the way he is with Joffrey and everything. You you get a moment of, of kind of your heart being lifted because you see Sandor Clegane continuing to back up Sansa when she reacts like a human being, unlike everybody else there who's not doing so out of fear. Of course, the Hound backs her up and that keeps her out of trouble with Joffrey. Now, Joffrey takes the word of the Hound because he basically believes that the man is superior. So her opinion doesn't matter to him at all until it is repurposed by Sandor. So that's one of those things that, that generates a mixture of emotions. It's like it's nice that the Hound did that for her at the same time. It makes you not think that much of Joffrey. But I don't know many people other than our good friends at the Joffrey of Podcasts uh, and their listeners. And it's a mighty army. It's kind of like the Stu Gatz army for, for Dan Levitard. Uh, it's a mighty army, the Joffrey of Podcasts army, that back Joffrey up and all the things that he does. But uh, just realize that that's a niche part of the fandom. It's, uh, it takes a special person. To be able to passionately defend Joffrey Baratheon. Anyway, I'm digressing. I need to get into uh, some other things here. There are a lot of things in this episode that seem a lot less important as compared to how very important to me they were the first time I watched this. There were, of course, this whole bevy of new characters with Stannis and all his crew, uh, Melisandre i didn't understand how they fitted in other than the fact that this was the person that ned had said to be in the throne and why was davos important why was melisandre important there were some weird things going on with him but that was more of an intellectual intrigue than any kind of emotional response uh the killing of the bastards plot that was you know horrifying anytime you see children being killed and the result being that it's like okay So Gendry's the last one, and you get 20 seconds of Arya on screen. And I remember the first time that I watched this, I was really frustrated that I only got 20 seconds of Arya. I was really miffed about that. Of course, that was a great setup to pay off the next episode, but I didn't see it that way at the time. Again, Tyrion has his little moments of triumph, which I guess are somewhat satisfying, although they don't seem extraordinary to any other aspect of Tyrion's character in a way. And I've got more to say about Tyrion here in a little bit. But the way he made Cersei mad, um, the way he made Cersei feel bad, uh, maybe some of us kind of like that because at the time, of course, um, Cersei protecting her children had been the reason that Ned really ended up being captured and ultimately killed by her son anyway. But uh, all of this stuff with Tyrion actually kind of seems like a very small victory when you consider... All of the real drama that has we've seen over the seasons happen within that Lannister family, right? I mean, this is just a little bit of maybe chuckle, in a way. And if if that's what you're into, then that's cool. I don't want to ever say that Game of Thrones isn't funny because sometimes it is. It's very funny, but it just seems like that that doesn't seem as important as uh, the the bigger things in the course of the series. Speaking of bigger things, let's get to my three big things for this episode. Three Three big things. And number one will, of course, be Stannis and Dragonstone. I'm not sure what the percentage of the audience would be suspicious of Stannis being such a twisted person when we first meet him. I, I will say for myself that because Ned thought that the throne should go to him, then I kind of took Ned's word for it. Uh, for quite a long time in both the tv and the books i kept dismissing things and saying well it's stannis so he's supposed to be there he's actually the rightful error and this was before all the stuff with john was being layered in and all that and i'm book readers already knew this so they they kind of knew that stannis was a, a ploy in a way a red herring in a way but as as far as stannis and his kind of jagged twists and and his demise and everything else i mean since the show has already closed the book on what is still an open chapter in a song of ice and fire not that i expect the outcome to be much different but at least in the books you can add pages upon pages of internal dialogue uh, that might influence you to see things differently rather than in the show where you have to keep things moving now granted stannis in the books, I don't believe ever has a point of view. I don't think I've ever seen a point of view of Stannis. Um, That's important because the characters that George keeps out of the point of view are the ones who will surprise you the most. And uh, I think for many of us who wanted to be Team Stannis, we were quite surprised when Season 5 came about. But once you're willing to burn your own daughter, I mean, what is there left for you to do, really? I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about book Stannis. I don't think that I'm going to feel any differently than I do about TV shows, Stannis. I am absolutely sure how I feel about TV, Stannis, and that was, I was fooled. I saw his thirst for power rather as a thirst for justice, and that was totally wrong. And when you look back at this, of course, with 2020 Vision and you're playing the result as I am during this rewatch, there are. Are actually some choices that are made here that would indicate that we, or rather, because some of you I'm sure were astute enough to pick up on this, or, or rather that I, shouldn't have trusted Stannis. There, there were things to indicate that. Things like Catelyn and Shireen, they weren't really cast until season three. There was a woman that was standing in, that he starts to actually just leave behind on the beach, and then he stops and extends his hand. Uh, to her after the ceremony. And that woman was supposed to be his wife, Celise. And the mere fact that this ceremony is probably more important to him than his own wife. I think that says something, at least to me. And it probably helped to show how easy it would be for Stannis to, you know, make that shadow baby with Melisandre the very next episode. So you have power plus passion and, that's a pretty deadly combination. It just it took it a while for it to become a deadly combination for Stannis himself. It ended up becoming deadly for a lot of people around him long before that. And for Stannis loyalists, and there are still some out there, uh, I'm sure that the biggest argument you can make is that Melisandre was influencing him from the moment they met. Maybe not just with her words, but with her magic. And I suppose it is possible, but how far can you stretch that to be a justification for some of the atrocities that he committed? I mean, he really didn't show as much regret regarding Shireen. It was Solis who suddenly changed her tune, and she had been the true believer of Melisandre all along by everything that we'd saw on screen, and yet Stannis, while seemingly... He didn't want to do it, but he was willing to do it. It was Solis that drove herself so mad that she ended up hanging herself over this. Stannis did not, of course. And, and speaking of that, let's talk about Melisandre and your first impressions of her and what it seems like she is now. To me, even in the beginning here, she seems somewhat of a fanatic. But I always saw that as a plot point for Stannis to overcome at some point. And I was hoping uh, upon my hearing about the Shireen stuff, because that was during season five. I didn't even get to see it as it aired. I had to watch it in a rewatch almost a year later, but I remember all of the outrage and everything. And I thought, man, that would have been the point where George or Dave and Dan could have really turned Stannis into the good guy, the guy who would put his foot down to Melisandre when it came to his daughter. A daughter who we saw him, actually, that's probably the one person that he was most tender with, if, if you could ever call Stannis tender at all. But Melisandre is just more or less a fanatic, right? I mean, we hear her speak of R'hllor, the Lord of Light, Azora High Reborn, all of these Lord of Light things. But, Sometimes I think she gets so convinced by her own interpretations of what she sees in the flames that she's willing to force things. And, for instance, this very scene, this very first scene where there's this ceremony where she more or less anoints Stannis as the Westerosi savior. Uh, She says that uh, salt and smoke is where he must be born, but she creates that situation. I mean, she makes Stannis reborn in salt and smoke by being next to an ocean amidst a bunch of wood burning. It's not naturally occurring at all, and I'm not sure what that definition is, but Melisandre made sure to make that sure that it was exact, regardless of whether it was natural or not. And to me, Melisandre is not unlike a terrorist who believes that bombing will ensure some kind of salvation, be that from their god or safety from their government, because remember that islamic extremism is to the faith of islam as the kkk is to christianity basically it's fringe and extreme beliefs that use these acts as some kind of justification from where they believe and that's anywhere from 9-11 to the oklahoma bombing i mean all of it is fanatical and extreme and when you think about all of the extremes that melisandre will go to here and beyond before there's a point, maybe, just maybe, where she sees the errors of her ways. Um, I think that she, then in season six, when she takes that necklace off, that's an exemplification of her complete loss of faith. And it's funny that the way the Lord of Light works, we'll hear a story from Thoros Amir, how he had completely lost his faith in the god, and then he just laid his hands on his friend Beric Dondarrion, and that miracle made him a believer again and made him the, probably the right kind of believer. And Melisandre, coming from another extreme, uh, maybe she needed that exact same thing too, where Jon Snow wakes up, and now maybe she can see things in the proper way. But it's too late. She's already done too much, and of course Davos sees that and uh, makes sure that she has nothing else to do with John, be he a Zorahai or not. Speaking of Davos, the interesting thing here is that Davos really isn't that unlike Melisandre. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I don't mean in terms of methodology or the way he thinks or, or what he's willing to do, but it does seem like his path is very tied to the path of the Lord of Light religion. I doubt that he likes that aspect of it much, But, nonetheless, he seems to be constantly in the presence of either Lord of Light followers or perceived Lord of Light leaders. Stannis, Jon, Daenerys, Melisandre. Even in this one, in regards with his words to Maester Crescent on the beach, Davos is still just trying to apply logic. He's the voice of reason in the madness that is to ensue everything around Stannis for this season and all future seasons. And Davos, because of his level-headedness and his good nature, it seems to me he should be one of our favorite characters. And what happens to him, happens to him. Uh, We don't know what will happen to him in Season 8. But I certainly have enjoyed uh, from Season 2 all the way through Season 7 with him on board. So that's my first big thing. My second big thing, warging. And this episode actually physically demonstrates to us the process of warging, basically for the first time. And the way we see it here initially, of course, is in a dream state for Bran. We're seeing through Summer's eyes in a dream state for Bran. But I also believe that you're seeing it demonstrated with Rob and Jamie as well. You might consider that there was some warging going on there the way that Grey Wind reacted with Rob. And the way that Grey Wind showed restraint after Rob walked away. There may have been some control happening there. And here across the last few episodes, back to when Rob left Bran in charge of Winterfell, you have this establishment of the male Stark line having some kind of magic connection because in that episode where Rob left Rickon basically predicted that neither Ned nor Catelyn nor Rob would ever come back and that turned out to be true and that's what we learn in season three that Jojen Reed later tells us is green seeing it's seeing the future or into the distant past the things that basically make Bran the three-eyed raven but that people have the ability to do as well. And like I said, up in this episode, we have Rob having just a little bit too precise of a control over Greywind regarding Jamie. So you have Rickon doing the green-seeing thing, you have Rob doing the warging thing, but neither of them actually show any kind of ability to do the other. But it's with Bran, who we've seen the Dream's, regarding the crypt and we know that he has the green seeing ability and now we've seen he has the ability to warg through summer and both of these are in a dream state right now but they will become more awakened as time goes on of course but this is basically what makes him the best qualified candidate i guess to become the three-eyed raven and you can ask the questions about, you know, was his fall was that part of the sacrifice that had to be paid in order for him to be able to do all of this, um, what have you? The me- the means to the end is always fun to explore, but the end of it is is that because he has both of these abilities, we've basically lost the character of Bran, and we have just it's just been replaced with a new three eyed raven, and that's a little sad. Nonetheless, warging is a big part of this. experience for Game of Thrones Um, there wasn't a whole lot of magic brought around until towards the end of season 1 of Game of Thrones and some people will attribute to the fact that dragons are now in the world as being a reason why there is more magic in the world and why we're seeing more of it right off the bat and I'll get to Melisandre's magic here in just a minute but first My third big thing, and that is the emergence of Joffrey Baratheon as king. Now, we've already seen a couple of episodes of him being king, but it was mostly just in regards of Ned. Here, he is starting to establish himself separate from the wailings of women, or whatever he said in episode 9, Balor. You know, now he is becoming his own person. He is directing the new dressings of the throne room. He's securing his ruling philosophy. It's my way or the highway. He does that even to his mother. He manages to forgive Cersei when she strikes him, but he warns her that he won't even forgive her if she ever does it again. And I think this is the last time that Joffrey even pays much attention to Cersei's words at all. He had the one question trying to give Cersei a chance to justify the Jamie cersei thing. She gave him the answer he probably wanted to hear. But also he's heard the whole bit about Robert Baratheon's bastards. But the only time that you really ever heard him seemingly really listen to mom was back when she told him that he should make up with Sansa and he actually went and got the locket and, and gave it to Sansa. But since then, he's, of course, disregarded her in terms of Ned's sentence. And and now, to him, his mother is just another woman, which, in his mind, as I mentioned before, women are vastly inferior to men. And it's not revealed, or I guess rather hinted at, until later. But Joffrey is the one who orders the killing of these Baratheon bastards. Even though we are led to believe that... It might have been Cersei who did it at this point because Cersei's been doing other things to protect Joffrey. If we consider that perhaps she got Lancel to just to be sure to get Joffrey to the throne quickly, you know, if she'll do that, um, why would she have any trouble killing any of Robert Baratheon's bastards, be they sons or daughters? But later on, In this season, she uses silence to defend her son when confronted about it by Tyrion. I think, if memory serves, um, it's coming soon, so I'll find out if I'm remembering correctly or not. But speaking of Tyrion, the first season, Tyrion's cleverness and his profoundness, especially with uh, the way that he talked to Jon Snow and everything, it was all very appealing but it seems like in season two, this is when we start to really bleach the hat extra white for Tyrion. That's happening a lot in, in this episode, in my opinion. And I, I thought of him being able to put Cersei in her place, him mocking Joffrey, offering solace to Sansa. It, it all makes him seem so honorable that you almost forget that he is going against his father's wishes regarding Shay, And that also white hats him in a way because now we're able to put the idea in our head that rather than just keeping a prostitute around that they almost make it seem as if Tyrion already loves her because obviously he could have hired a similar sex worker in King's Landing but quote instead he chose her so white hat all around and really in a show of so many different shades of gray to me That's a little annoying. However, one might also point out that this repetition of falling for a paid professional gets him and Shay into the same peril as what happened to Tyrion before. The sex worker ends up hurt in the first case, dead in this case, and he ends up mentally anguished. Except this time will also be a double murder. So you can look at the fact that this double murder uh, is a gray area for Tyrion. But my point is that Tyrion becoming dark is a result of things happening to him instead of the choices that he makes. And to me, that's justifying someone taking a dark turn in a little bit too white hat of a way. For instance, Do you justify Arya's vengeance quest, or do you see her for what she has done now? Do you apply the same logic for Tyrion in regards to Tywin as you do for Arya in regards to, say, Marin Trent? That leads me to a couple of other questions here. Questions. Questions? Well, really, just one. And I promised I'd talk a little bit more about Melisandre. That necklace, man. I mean... Now we've learned, of course, that that necklace has multiple powers, evidently. What kind of a stone does she have there that can not only create what we call a glamour to hide her age, but also what helps defy the poison in this cup that Maester Cresson gives her? That stone glowing wild is an indication that I guess the stone is working overtime? I'm not sure. Because it doesn't glow all the time when it's glamoring her. Um, There are more mentions of it glowing in the books, I think, than there are demonstrations of it in the television show. But I don't know that that says anything, because in the books, we don't really know what Melisandre is yet. Whereas in the TV show, we now clearly know that she is this old woman who's been around for a long time, who evidently has been waiting for this apocalypse to happen so that she could have a purpose because she told Varies that she's going to die, right? But what role does the stone play? Is it completely the source of her magic? I mean, she also has those powders and, you know, potions and whatever that she showed Selise in season four. And of course, that was the time when she still looked like the young her, but she didn't have the necklace on. So that's something that people always go after uh, when they go showrunner headhunting and I look at it like this one of two ways it's like either if you're going to be an apologist for it you can say well look at the expressions on Celise's face like she was seeing something that we weren't about Melisandre maybe Celise was actually seeing Melisandre in her natural form and because (laughs) there was no budget to do that in season four, then we simply got the regular Carice Van Houten, who was still more than willing to go around topless. So you can do that as a show apologist, or if you want to absolutely persecute him, you can say, see, that destroys the whole power of the stone, which is what we're questioning here. The power of the stone itself. Is it the potion? Is it the magic? Is it a combination? Is it the stone? There's all kinds of questions. And you can say that scene Simply just destroyed um, any kind of believability that you can have in in Melisandre and, and the necklace. And it's just the showrunners were so stupid. <laughs> you know what? It doesn't really matter. Take that scene out or go back and CGI the necklace Honor in later releases when they come out on DVD. You can George Lucas it if it really is that important to people, to me it's not important. But I do want to know what the power of this necklace is. How many other powers does it have? Will that be something that will be critical in season eight and therefore cost her her life in some way? These are the kinds of questions that I think are much more important than why did the showrunners forget to put the stone in here if you're going to nitpick like that I used to do that a lot believe me I used to do that a whole lot we used to call them Matt's Tomatoes back when I podcasted about Lost on Keys to Lost little nitpicky things that really don't matter they don't affect how you feel about Melisandre they don't affect what she can do or what she can't do the only thing that affects that is what Dave and Dan write down so I say let it go But if you can't let it go, or if you're pondering the same questions about me, whether because we've seen the power of this stone work in a couple of different ways, does it have another powerful purpose still in its future? Feel free to chime in on that. You can write an email to me, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, and give me your thoughts that way. Or you can tweet at mattsgotblog on Twitter. Again, that's M-A-T-T-S and then either audioblog at gmail.com or g o t blog on Twitter. Really, that's the only question that I had, I guess. There were multiple questions put up in there. Do you? uh, Here's another one just regarding that. Are you a person who blames the showrunner, or are you a person who overly defends it one way or the other? Because I feel like both are a little extreme. I just think it's just something that just happened. But I have to admit that if this had been eight years ago, nine years ago, I probably would have been a little more upset about it than I am now. It's what happens with age. You have to let the little things go. (laughs) Here's a couple of tidbits. Speaking of little things, tidbits. let's start with Daenerys watching it this time around. It had been so long. And I think I'd spent so much time for a couple of years railing against Daenerys that I had forgotten (laughs) that traveling through the red waste was actually out of necessity not out of choice. Jorah seems to think that if they didn't head in this particular direction, they'd end up dead. And if it's any indication, what happens to Ricaro is certainly proof of that, right? Once again, I finally noticed that actor who plays Ricaro. he's uh, the lead actor in Scorpion. I can't remember the guy's name. It's really weird. Gable? Something like that? Gabel? I don't know uh, how you pronounce it, but Uh, he's the lead actor in that, uh, Scorpion series that's on CBS. And this is actually his last episode. Uh, it was kind of nice for the writers to give a a character nod for Danny to, to, you know, show some confidence in him, uh, before he ended up returning with a detached head, right? Um, obviously her confidence was not placed very well because he didn't make it very far. I will say that the thing that hit me this time and in previous rewatches, at least emotionally, and, and it's something I'm not sure really hit me the very first time I watched this episode, is that the death of Danny's horse, that's really her last direct connection to Drogo. He is now essentially gone from her life. I mean, most of his Kalasar is obviously gone. Her child is gone. And now his wedding gift to her. That horse is gone. Even if you want to count her slaves, or now handmaidens, or maybe they always were handmaidens, I'm not sure, but Eerie and Doria, it seems to be more of an idea of Viserys's. Speaking of Doria, uh, it's much easier to pick up on her fascination with the dragons this time around, right? From her talk with Daenerys about the dragons coming from the moon or whatever back in season one, to her scene with Viserys back in season one where she wants to know all about the dragons. And and now in this episode, the way she's looking at at Drogon as as Danny tries to feed him, it all kind of points to what will happen later this season. And remember, even Eri and Doria are gone the way of the Dodo by the end of the season, so those will be... Her absolute, even if you want to include those as Drogo connections, those will be gone here shortly. There's also Jorah and and Danny's whole that he is her rock thing, more or less. I'm sure that that's in some way emboldening him. I think that's the impression we're supposed to get because he does start to get more bold about his feelings as they go on and get into Karth. She obviously didn't mean it that way because of the way she puts him down later on when they do get to Karth. But, (laughs) George just keeps digging the friend zone hole over and over and over again. So that's all I got on Danny. Let's go north to uh, Craster's. And Gilly, she's the Craster's daughter that we all love, right? Right? No? If you don't, well, I love Gilly. Because she's kind of the practical, the Sam's dreamer side. And sometimes that even works in reverse. She's a dreamer in Sam's practical side. And if you don't love their story, that's absolutely fine. I don't think any less of you. Hopefully you don't think any less of me because I do. I I know that Hannah Murray is is scheduled to be, or I guess, well, by the time you hear this, will have been scheduled to be at Con of Thrones this year. I'm pre-recording these a little bit. And I know that her panel is on the day that I'm going to be attending Con of Thrones, so I'm kind of looking forward to that to see what she says. I'll share with you in future episodes, hopefully, or will have shared with you in the feedback episode, because um, you'll get that before you get this episode. Uh, trying to keep track of things. Uh, speaking of Craster's Keep, um, there's really not a whole lot that you can glean from these scenes with John that you don't get on a first watch. There is this other mention of Mance Rayder, and of course he'll play a, a bigger part across season three through the beginning of season five. And obviously you can see here how Craster is unwilling to part with food, how that's going to become an issue when the Watch returns after the Fist of the First Men battle. Th- those are kind of foreshadowing things. But we actually got the mention of Mance Rayder back in the last season with Osha and her wobbling companions that she was traveling with. So it's nothing new. Uh, On the other hand, uh, this bit here with Craster unwilling to part with food, um, and that's really what becomes part of the issue um, in season three when uh, everything goes bad for Jor Mormont and the faithful Night's Watch people. Is Sam the only one? Because everybody else kind of mutinies, I guess. John's already gone. Speaking of John, I mean, him being dissenting towards Craster and and Mormont kind of delivering that, quote, teaching moment. I mean, all of that seemed appropriate for what we all knew the second that Sam had told John that John was being groomed for command. I mean, this is the learning process that we knew we were going to get from that moment on. um, So that's not that big of a deal. And whether you feel that John commanded the Night's Watch well once he got to the position or not, I think you can certainly see that not many in the Night's Watch, as we saw the seasons progress, were very appreciative of him at any given time. There's one other Cersei bit in here that I wanted to bring up too, because the bit between Cersei and Littlefinger, this whole power is power speech and demonstration that Cersei gives to Littlefinger, already we see that Littlefinger has a different idea of what power is, that knowledge is power. And we've seen Littlefinger use that knowledge. Um, you hear the request f- to look for Arya. He never tells Cersei that he found her at Harrenhal. He doesn't tell anybody, doesn't tell Tywin, doesn't tell all of them. He instead tucks that down as knowledge. And the only person that he actually reveals that to is the person that he needs to influence later on, and that's Sansa. I don't know if that was out of loyalty to Kat. It- it's possible that he n- never told anybody except Sansa. But I think it files into his philosophy here of knowledge is power and having that knowledge and deciding when to use it. So that's his perspective of it. On the other hand, this whole debate about what power is, because we're going to have that famous uh, Varys speech about power coming in this season as well. But I, I think the question of what actual power is, is a course a big running theme throughout this whole series or at very least for this season so that was the point that i really wanted to make about that then we have the red comet which i also want to talk about just a little bit and osho once again uh, gives us possible answers to magical seeming kind of things You know, she talked about how the old gods were answering Bran in in an earlier episode. And now this whole conversation between her and Bran points to a whole bunch of possible meanings that really, when you think about it, all of them come true in one way or other. So there's never a clear definition as to what the comment actually meant. Uh, If you think about it, Bran brings up that Rob will win a great victory in the South. Well, I don't know if, it's definitely south of Winterfell, but the, the, what is it, the Golden Tooth or whatever that Arya sees a note about in this season when she gets to Harrenhal. Actually, Rob wins many battles in the south. The whole point about blood being spilled, lots of blood is spilled right up to the Red Wedding. The Lannisters do eventually win because of the Red Wedding. You know, all of these explanations or possible explanations for the Comet are brought up during the course of this conversation. And yes, now, of course, dragons are in the world. And that's the one that I would put my thought to most. But you can't disprove any of them. Because what I loved most about this statement, especially in an episode where religion and magic, they're kind of emerging to the forefront. You know, we had a little bit of magic at the end of season nine. Now, you know, we've got a girl who can resist poison. You know, all kinds of new magical things are happening. The dragons are here now. This show, and really George in the books, they showed how prophecy and religion can always be twisted by those who want to use it for whatever they want to use it for, or to say whatever they want to say. Since all of those things could technically be attributed to the comet, then no one is right. Or everyone is right. So that's the kind of meta thing that I love about George's story. And I love the fact that Dave and Dan, of course, included it, because I think it's really important that perception is nine-tenths of the law for a lot of people's reality. But the thing that I also liked about it that just kind of made me chuckle is, is I thought about this meteor and it's kind of like us podcasters when we're throwing out like the most general prediction possible. And then, you know, a few months later when some little part of it seems to justify our general statement, very general statement, then we pat ourselves on the back for being right about it. Things like that drive me crazy now. Uh, They didn't used to, but they do now. I just, it's, it's all a bunch of pomp and circumstance I don't need to predict anything. And it's not that all podcasters do that. But if you're going to do that, do your homework, right? I mean, I, I know that every preseason of Game of Thrones, I actually make an 8 to 10 set of not bold predictions uh, right before the season starts. And I do that to prove my point here. I, I mean, I specifically call them not bold Because anyone can pretty much take a guess at what's going to happen. Uh, And so I I make very general statements so that I can check almost all of them off at the end of the season and say, See? Just know that I do that out of sarcasm. I don't do that because I take myself that seriously. Hopefully none of us take ourselves that seriously. Speaking of not taking yourself seriously, there's something that's just absolutely still funny to me. I I just, I, I it, it's just, every time Rob speaks and then somebody behind him goes, King of the North, King of the North, you know, it's, it's like this, it's like this Monty Python chorus behind, you know, somebody saying something, it's so Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I know it's probably not meant to be that way, uh, but it, it just, it just tickles me pink you know, to hear uh, Roger Cassell or, or Theon, you know, Rob says, we are independent. And then everybody goes, King in the North, King in the North. It's just, it strikes me. That's a out of story moment for me that, that just kind of breaks everything down. I can't take that scene very seriously, but you do have to look at it seriously in the terms that an independent North, it's something that stays with the show for quite a while. Now you can technically say that the Red Wedding putting the Boltons back into Winterfell um, brings the North back in under throne control. But that's not really for that long of a period of time. Uh, You could say that at least probably half of this whole series the North has rebelled against the Iron Throne. And it's still in rebellion technically now. Uh, It's in rebellion of Cersei's Iron Throne now, when John gets back and has to tell the guys at Winterfell that he bent the knee to Daenerys, or if they already know, this is not good. Uh, I don't imagine for John in some ways or another. But, you know, Daenerys isn't sitting the throne yet. So, therefore, the North is still in open rebellion. And maybe John will figure out a way to go back on that promise to Daenerys once he finds out who he is. Maybe... John will uh, eventually sit the Iron Throne. And whether he or Daenerys does, maybe some different decisions will be made then and the North can be independent. Maybe all of the realms will be independent. That's not a new thought. Everybody's been thinking about that for like the last five years. And for book readers, probably for longer than that. But nonetheless, right now, the North will not bend the knee to the current Iron Throne. So that whole... King in the North, King in the North. Well, again, makes me laugh. It also makes me think about how serious that actually is, right? Oh, I think that's all I've got for this episode. I've probably bored you long enough with my little King in the North. So let's get on to Three Words. Three Words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what? Give for that wonderful phrase To hear those three little words Wow, this episode is running long. My musical segment was a little long, I think. Anyway, three words. This is what we do to describe an episode. We try to describe it in three words. This is my original thing, segment that I used to do with Keys to Lost, Uh, starting back in 2009 i don't know if anybody did it before but i thought that i'd come up with it yeah we always think that we came up with it we came up with that theory we came up with it you know there's so much there's so many content providers out there doing a whole slew of things that i'm pretty sure i'm not the first one that came up with three words but i'm the only one who's used it consistently to my knowledge anyway a dead plot line those are my three words You know, a while back, I got a tweet from my friend Bubba from the Double P Podcast Network. He sent me a tweet asking if I'd list all of the characters that are in each episode that are dead by season eight. And I just can't allow myself to get that depressed by doing that in every episode. I I think it would destroy my rewatch. But here, and and maybe this is even worse, It, it doesn't seem as personal to me, but here a whole subject is introduced... In the Stannis plotline. That doesn't make it past season 5. It dies. Other than Melisandre and Davos going on to support Jon. But that's not the cause. The cause here was to make Stannis. Ned's last wish basically. He sent off this letter. Telling Stannis that he was the rightful heir. And now. Stannis and all of his family. The reasons for everything. You know Melisandre was never in it really. To... Get Stannis King Except for the fact That she was hoping He would form an army To fight the White Walkers Davos was just Somebody who was Blindly loyal To a guy who Only cut off A couple of fingers Instead of uh, Instead of hanging him Stannis really In the long run Even though Again You know His whole bit with the letter In this particular episode Is funny In a way It's also kind of Makes you Appreciate him In a way that he's so meticulous. Um, It makes you feel a little bit for his over-attention to detail. I I don't want to call it obsessive-compulsive. Because I don't really think that's what it is. It's just it's so straight and bland. You know, it's just like it is. Except for Stannis never really was like it is. Because once he and Melisandre made that shadow baby... he, He was lost. In the need... For magic and that need for magic ended up destroying him it ended up destroying his family it destroyed his brother it destroyed his wife it destroyed his daughter it destroyed his plans but the thing is is that at this point you buy into it and then you get to the end of season five where brianne and it, it's somewhat satisfactory i guess that you get a cutaway shot of brianne chopping stannis's head off i guess it's somewhat satisfying but it's just kind of like oh man He spent all that time investing in this guy of course i don't imagine that anybody was all that invested in the guy who was willing to burn his daughter once that decision was made uh, and he had nothing left to do but die but did stannis really do anything of consequence other than his army defeating Mance raider's wildlings I mean, you can see that as something of a consequence. But I can't really think of any other consequence that Stannis had in the story. And some people will complain. Well, why did you waste my time with this when nothing's really going to come out of it? Well, something did come out of it. Life. This kind of stuff happens all the time. People live and people die. And their purpose as to why they were here, why they touched our lives this way or that, may just not be clear and you wonder why you don't miss them more or why you don't miss them less man I'm, speaking of dark i'm turning all dark let's get to the best coupling of the episode that's "Brothelmates" of the episode next so clearly three little words eight little letters but simply mean raffle mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me, O is for the only one I see, V is very, very extraordinary, even more than anyone that you adore can Love is all that I can give Man, you. this episode is really running long I apologize, folks I always try to keep these around 60 minutes Even if I do have more to say I keep hoping I can work it in somewhere else uh, But this one, I just can't seem to stop talking Anyway, brothel mates of the episode This is the best coupling of the episode It does not have to be two people If you're new to this podcast, the brothel mates can be a girl and a dragon, or it can be a concept and a person, or it can be two people. It can be two people. That's easy enough to do, right? For me, this time around, the brothelmates of the episode are Maester Crescent and his cause. Not necessarily his cause of getting Melisandre out, but his cause of telling hard truths to people in power. Speaking truth to power is the hardest thing to do for a lot of people. And in most countries, world leaders have people around them who won't cower to them. It's usually in the countries where you don't have that that you have some trouble. I'm not saying which countries they are, but you you do that in your own head. Anyway, Telling truth to power is very important, and this is something that it almost feels like Davos was always willing to do. But it really gets solidified in his head by having Maester Crescent not only tell him that, but demonstrate that he is willing to die for that cause. And hey, if you were willing to die for someone or something, then you're obviously in love with that cause incidentally folks if, if you don't know if you're a tv only person and this don't worry this has nothing to do with uh, spoiling you about anything actually the whole sequence with maester crescent was in the pov chapter the very first chapter of clash of kings the second book now i can understand why the showrunners didn't want to put that scene right up front of season two because we don't know any of these people right you just don't Shock people like that. It was enough of a shock where they put it. But nonetheless, we have this scene happening, and that's the source of my brothelmates of the episode. So, what are yours, or what are your three words? You can send an email to MATTS at gmail.com or MATTSGOT blog on Twitter. And we will have a feedback podcast at the end of Season 2, just like we did at the end of Season 1. It's the one episode back, if you want to listen to it. And I hope to hear from you. The whole idea of this podcast is to build a really good community going into the final season of Game of Thrones so that we can all talk about what we see that's new together. But in order for us to be able to understand how we're interpreting what we see that is new, sometimes it is helpful to figure out, how we interpreted things in the past. And so that's what this is all about. And if you can submit feedback, I would love to share it with the rest of our listeners. If you're one of those people that doesn't like to do that, you just like to sit back and listen, yeah, I get that too. Back with some closing thoughts here in a second. And that's going to do it for this very long episode. Again, if you're used to the episodes being shorter and you don't like longer episodes, I apologize. If you wanted more content per episode, well, by golly, here you go. Although I don't know about the value of the content, I can certainly tell you that the quantity was increased this time around. Please remember to support the music that I've listed in the show notes uh, for this particular podcast. Those artists, they're out there working hard. I know what it's like. I've been on tour. I've had to promote records. I've done all of that stuff. It's so hard. The music business isn't nearly as rock and roll as everybody thinks it is. And these guys are working hard, so please support them. And remember, if you have any feedback for Season 2, or if you want to do Season 1 feedback as well, feel free to send it to me. You have until July tenth, 2018, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or mattsgotblog on twitter we'll see you next week